Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. Two years have passed since I last spoke with Vicky Featherston, artistic director of the Royal Court Theatre. In that time, the world as we knew it changed beyond measure, and the lens with which we view the theatrical world on and off stage was pulled into focus. In this podcast, recorded three hours before the Belfast opening of Cypress Avenue, Vicky talked with me about staging the production now in Dublin, Belfast and New York City the importance of counterbalancing issues across a diverse programme and sharing the brunt of that responsibility through eclectic commissions. Vicky talks about the No Grey Area Day of Action held at the Royal Court last October, an event she felt compelled to create that bore witness to a floodgate of testimonies about abuses of power in the theatre industry and the compiling of a code of behaviour for lasting change. We go on to talk about the aftermath of disclosure, the place of social media in sharing stories and the green-eyed monster which, seemingly, has no place in the present tense. Enjoy this podcast. So Vicky Vettelson, we have found a safe place to have a fast chat in the Mac Theatre Belfast, where Cypress Avenue is on its second leg of a three-legged tour. Last week, Peacock Theatre Dublin, this week the Mac, and a week or so away, you'll be in the Public Theatre in New York. So three cities, three diverse audiences are going to receive and read this play in an entirely different way. What's your expectation on that? I mean, I think it's always really exciting to see new audiences uh, kind of approach the play. And it's been a kind of incredible privilege for all of us to be able to put it on again. Um, and um, I think, uh, I might be jumping ahead, but I think we've really realised that this play is now on in a very different context to how it was before. Um, and that's been quite shocking and quite exciting as well to kind of be thinking about that. Um, of course, it's never been in Belfast before, so we are sort of three hours away from the first performance in Belfast, um, which we're all very excited about and quite nervous. There's quite a kind of sense of trepidation as well and how will the audience receive it. So, yeah, and then I've got no idea about New York. Um, uh, you know, I think, I mean, one audience is never the same, is it? You, it's a different group of people. It's kind of always bad to generalise about an audience. But, you know, every, every night is different. But I'm very interested to see how the Americans will take the tone. Yeah, within that first minute, um, I mean, I think a Dublin audience, uh, at times, Belfast can feel a lot further than two hours down the road yeah. to us. And then um, here, it's in their DNA. I think you know, there's a shorthand, there's a vocabulary there, there's instant recognition. Um, and then in America, I was thinking that they'll, within that first minute, they'll tune into that yeah. innate uh, racism. Yeah, that's absolutely. Present. And have you thought of, I suppose, how you handle those reactions, if there is? Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot, and obviously it's a different actress this time playing the part of the, of, of the psychiatrist. And um, we talked a lot when we started rehearsals this time about whether the sort of environment and the kind of culture would change so much that was it still appropriate to start the play in the same way? And I think it's really important that we continue to ask those kind of questions. Um, so I think the lens through which we see that kind of innate racism in Eric's character um, has become much more acute now, um, post sort of Charlottesville, Black Lives Matter, all of those kinds of things. And I've really felt that, I was going to say even in Dublin, I don't mean that, but I, I've, I've already felt that in Dublin, that, you know, sometimes uh, when we did it the first time, there would be some laughs around that. And literally this time, everybody would gasp at the sort of, I don't know, at the outrageousness of him saying the N-word. We might get back to the 2018 lens, and I'm thinking, though, when you do revisit a production, um, are, are you tempted 
And have you been tempted to make those changes? How close did you come? I mean, I think that if the actress playing it, Ronke, had, had... I mean, I think she probably wouldn't have taken the part if she had found it uncomfortable in the wrong way, personally, for her. Um, but I think because I really trust her and I really trust her politics and there's a lot to learn from listening to other people's politics, um, I think how she was going to respond to that would have informed whether I felt we were dealing with it responsibly. Um, but she was very, very clear that it's really, really, really important that we're able to say that and deal with it in the space, which I think the play does. It's been two years since we last visited Cypress Avenue and, as you say, the world has utterly changed in that time. Does the central question of this play get a different answer now in 2018? What would you say the central question is? Well, I suppose the central question for me would be all about identity and isolation and, I mean, I know he's, he, he suffers a trauma, but yeah, it's those two things and I think yeah. those two things have been heightened and ratcheted yeah. since yeah, I the think last two years. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I feel, for me, I would say that I agree that that's what they're the central questions and I think for me, when we did it before, Eric felt like an absolute extremist because we, there was no platform for views like his to be espoused, so it's very shocking to hear them, but he seems like an individual extremist. And I think, and, and therefore slightly theatrical creation. And I think in the time between that, because that, that platform for that level of hatred, sense of identity has become more acceptable. That he's become somewhat normalised. He's become he's normalised. He's less shocking in his he's shocking less shocking way. shocking in his shocking way. So for me, it feels much more, oddly, it feels, uh, it feels much more dangerous now that we... So before, I don't think a lot of people recognised Eric. They were shocked that he existed. And I think now people recognise Eric and go, if you have this within you and this sense of identity and this sense of nationhood and what this means, the outcome is this, this act of violence. So I feel the play's become more powerful. You've talked before about um, hating predictability yeah. and, and um, embracing risk. Was, was there a risk to putting it on this time? Um, in terms of what the play's about, do you mean, or just generally? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, was it a calculated risk? Did you say, right, this did well before, I'm bringing it back. But then, are you thinking of the consequences in that 2018 lens going, well, it's different now? I think that we thought bringing it back was about bringing, giving it to a bigger audience. And then I think for me, in the going into the thinking about doing it, so not before, as we were kind of approaching re-rehearsals, I really thought about that lens. So I think we'd already committed to it before we thought about, before I thought about that lens. As a human being who yeah. happens to be a director, will you talk to me about the violence in the play yeah. and the violence against women and the yeah. place of anger yeah. in this play? Yeah, so, so I really struggled with this over through the first drafts. And for me, the play is very much about a kind of patriarchal hatred, uh, a sort of, sort of societal kind of failure, if you like and that is misogynistic and we have that in our lives every day so for me the fact that the play is quite satirical and is quite heightened 
and there is a lot of humour in the play and there is a sort of like edge in terms of its tone. We know that violence isn't real. We know it's a metaphor. We know we're not watching domestic abuse being played out in front of us. We're watching a man who kills because he cannot bear the person that he is and the history that he holds. So for me, I think that's, it, that's truthful and that's really strong. But actually, as I say, the tone for me makes us, I hope, makes us be able to look at it in a certain way rather than just feel it, so we judge it. Which for me is why it's really important that the, the sort of mess and the sort of trauma that he's brought about and that we see that it is a male trauma and it's, not, it's something that they were not in control of and that they had no agency in. So for me, that final image is really important for justifying it. If it was cleared... I mean, you can see the consequence of it. It's all about the consequence, mm. yeah. I think it just occurred to me, on Raftery's Hill by Marina Carr upstairs... Yes. Um, the writing of David's play we don't feel empathy for the daughter when she's literally the shock of the act. So he's not trying to twist our emotions in that way. We're supposed to feel repulsed by the act. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly clever in the way that he's written that and the way that he set those characters up. That whereas I would say with On Raftery's Hill, I feel unbelievable sadness and remorse for what those characters are enduring, whereas I don't feel that for the women in, in, um, in Cypress Avenue. I mean, for me, the conversation around this is again, we were just saying this before we started recording, but for me, it's about, so what's the work that counters this violence? So if David Ireland's play was the only play I was ever doing, I would be really distressed by the lack of female agency within the play, even though the play is about misogyny, patriarchy, all of those things. So, it's, so what, what are we all doing to create the environment for women, for stories to be told where women have a different kind of agency and where they are in control of those things themselves and they're not being done to? So the story that Marina's telling is a historical, social story that needs to be told. But once that's told, where, where, does, where does the kind of canon of playwriting move, where does it go next? So for me, I think, especially like programming something like the Royal Court and commissioning all the writers that I commission, I think it's really important that no single play needs to take responsibility for all, for all the things that we would think around, say, violence against women, but that actually programming and other writers need to create the balance against it. And that's really important to me. So the responsibility does not lie on one playwright's shoulders? No, it mustn't, because David Ireland had a very clear need, as did Marina, for what it is that they needed to write and the way that they needed to write it, both as brilliant artists and both plays in the Abbey at the same time were unbelievably powerful in those productions. Brilliant production by Katrina. So they really worked. What's, what's dangerous is if we start to, myself included, start to kind of really unpick the fabric of something like Cypress Avenue, which is doing what it needs to do brilliantly, because I need something else to be being said. What I need to do is make sure I'm commissioning, because I can, or developing writers that are going to show a counter to that, 
can't say everything. It can't do. And sometimes we need to think, we make, because we are more complex often than an idea of a play, we, we put, put that onto a play. And I think it's really important as people who are part of making theatre that we don't do that to all the play. Theatre at its best yeah. holds a mirror up to society. So in October 2017, you found yourself centre stage holding a mirror up to your own industry as artistic director of the Royal Court. Did you feel compelled to speak out and ask questions when no one else seemed to be saying it out loud? And did you ask, why was it down to you to talk out loud on such things? Yeah, good questions. Um, I didn't ask, why was it down to me? Because I, I, I didn't feel that anyone else should have done it. I felt that I should. And if anyone else wanted to, they could too. So, you know, I, I sent, I sent, I sent, you know, so, so what happened was for me that once the Harvey Weinstein thing started to break, after like about two days, I just remember going, when, when, when are we going to start having this conversation in theatre? And I literally composed that tweet, which, went, when, which was something like that, when are we going to start having this conversation in theatre and what should we do about it? And I went into my office and I said, I really want to send this, what do we think? And everyone, everyone just go and send it, send it. And it's that thing about when you kind of, you send an arrow out because you know you're going to have to respond, but you don't know what you're going to have to do as a result of it. So it was a real act of, you're going to have to do something about this, Vicky, but you don't know what it is. You just have to make that moment and you have to make that move. So it was very deliberate. And what kind of, so you send that arrow out. Yeah. There's a responsibility in listening to what's coming back. Yes. What kind of suggestions were coming back to you um, as to how to deal with yeah. this? Well, that was why we ended up doing the No Grey Area Day, because I then got like hundreds of tweets, responses to me saying we should, you know, there were, I mean, it was, oh God, I can't rush to have a look. I, there were loads and loads of things like um, specific things about we shouldn't be able to do this in the rehearsal room, we shouldn't be able to do that. There should be better avenues that people could be investigated. Lots and lots of different things. And I realised there was so much stuff that we'd created a kind of storm of idea and actually I had to take some responsibility strategically for focusing that in terms of the question that I'd asked. Otherwise I was just doing the same thing as not having done it effectively. So that was like maybe two two days after I'd sent out the tweet, we were having a senior management meeting and I said, look, I feel I really need to take responsibility for having sent this out and what we're going to do. Um, and I had then already thought that we needed to have some kind of day of action. So for me, it kind of broke up into the, the day of action was really responding to the things that people were saying. And what I realised that we needed to do was to create a space where we could bear witness and hear the testimonies and stories so that people were not silent and people were being able to speak out and they were in a safe space. Um, so that, and that is the act of theatre as well. So for me, that was really important that we did that. So we invited people to send stuff in and we had this five and a half hours um, constant reading out of testimonies, which was only, I mean, if, we'd, if, we, if we had taken more time, there would have been more. This was because it was like six days later. And then upstairs, I felt that what we need, in the theatre upstairs, what we needed to do was to create something which, having listened to them, was about how do we stop that from happening in future. So we developed these workshops, and to begin with, we were only going to do like one or two, but they sold out so quickly, so we ended up doing like five or six of them throughout the day. Um, and that was about how do we stop that scenario, or that scenario, that scenario happening, what would we have put in place? And that's how we came up with our code of behaviour. So basically everything we did was responding to what people were telling me they needed.
So then how do you know when you're handling it right? Because there is a responsibility in listening to these stories. Like, there feels like there's a duty of care there mm. to um, take care of these people who are sharing their stories. Mm. I mean, I think you don't know if you're handling it right. And I kept saying, we may be getting this wrong, but at least we're doing it. So I sort of like, not as in not taking responsibility, but I kept saying, unless we do this, we won't know what we need to be doing. Um, and I think people understood that because I think often the fear of getting it wrong can stop people and the fear of getting all the language right around it and then I was just like actually I just have to kind of like do it and if I, we talk about leadership if I do it and I and it's about me doing it rather than this is what the royal court is saying or what the theatre thing is saying then it's easy for me to go actually I, we got it wrong well can you separate you from the royal court you can't separate me from the royal court but you can say I think I'm, I'm happy to be saying that if we get it wrong, I've got it wrong. You know, rather than not do anything, it's better just to do something. Was there any backlash? Not at the time, because people wouldn't have dared. I think subsequently there's been quite a lot of backlash. I mean, there's been a lot of backlash which hasn't been to my face, but which I've heard about, which is that, you know, because it is the Royal Court, has, has took it all too far that you know, people are kind of scared if we've got lists of people that we're going to start exposing, all this kind of thing, rather than the positive thing, which is the act of having the conversation, so that once you have the conversation, hopefully people feel empowered that they can, they can feel that they can be listened to or that they can stop things in the future. That was why we were doing it. For me, it wasn't about the past. It was about how do we empower ourselves for it not to happen in the future. It's, it is too early, I suspect, to kind of feel that change mm. but you you've worked in the theatre for a lot of years now mm. have you a sense that something is changing and that you have been a part of that well I think that people have I mean I think people um know to how to say no and how to be listened to more easily now I don't know and I think people are more wary of their behaviors so I think definitely there is no way that it is exactly the same as it was before there's no way what do you think it is that um, allowed it to bloom uh, so much? Because uh, I think, is it, you know, what happens to people when they get a dose of power? Mm. Like, was it always there uh, mm. in them? And, and, and uh, I, I, I mean, were I, they always rat bags? Yeah, probably. Yes, they were. But I also think that there's this thing about, you know, I, I really realised after, in the middle of all this, that a lot of men, particularly, aren't, aren't necessarily age appropriate. So I think that, this is like just my thesis, so I think that like as women get older, you're aware, well I am anyway, in a good way, but I'm aware of my age. So I don't look at a 22 year old man and think that we are sexually compatible in any way, I wouldn't even think of that, you know, that person is closer to my son in age. Whereas a lot of men who have children of a similar age would find 20-year-old women unbelievably attractive. And, but I think, I, think, I think men, it's easier for men not to feel or be age appropriate. I think they can feel eternally young and slightly more boyish. And I think a lot of the things happen that I happen through that. So a man will not think of himself as a dirty old man. They don't recognise themselves. They don't recognise it. They think they're the same age. They still fit. I, I mean, it's a terrible generalisation, but I know from so many people that I've spoken to that that's right. 
Whereas, you know, I'm like, why would I hang out with a 20-year-old man, boy? <laughs> is it, it's not flattering. Is it solely, the, is it, I mean, you've read all, you've heard all those testimonies, and I'm not being glib about this, but is there, you know, women in power who, you know, bully and harass? So bullying, yes, 100%. Absolutely no question. And, you know, it's, it's, it's horrific. But I, not sexual, not the systemic sexual harassment. No way, really, you know. And people sort of taking people back to their flats. All the thing, all the stories were so intense. And it is an, it, it's an abuse of power. And it's also, it's flat, that's what I'm doing, it's flattery. It's people being flattered by younger people thinking that they're really interesting. It's so narcissistic. It's, a lot of it is what it's about. Do you think um, social media, in regards to, I suppose, now I will imagine that in a, I don't know, a year or so, that there'll be a lot of plays written about this subject mm. matter. Do you think that social media has changed how we share our stories mm. and how we tell our stories? Yeah, I mean, I think it has. I mean, you know, for me, that, that tweet, I wouldn't have known how to have done that if it hadn't been for Twitter. To throw something out there that I knew I had to take responsibility for and to get that much feedback. So that's really helpful. Um, you know, and a lot of, you know, we have such fear around social media and privacy and oversharing all those kinds of things and all of that is kind of valid, I think, but actually there are so many brilliant benefits from it as well that people don't need to feel, I mean, you know, people can feel isolated, it can bring all kind of mental health issues around it because people aren't in, you know, are observing a world that they're not part of. But on the other hand, people also don't need to feel isolated, so they can reach out. So I think it's, I think it has been incredibly important in all of this. I mean, I certainly wonder, and I, I worry about the cost of someone uh, drumming up the courage to share yeah. uh, this confidence, uh, and then there's that initial uh, flush of support. Yeah. And then I wonder what happened, you know. Yeah, I know. It's really difficult. I, 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 I agree with you entirely because so many people have come to us and then you sort of start a conversation and you move things and you help them move their thinking on and what are the next things they need to do. Um, and then there are these great, yeah, you know, when, does, when does, is a change going to happen? Is somebody going to stand up and be counted? All of that is still so grey and so complex. Um, and I really agree with you. I think the cost of people coming forward. But what I've also observed is that actually what people need often is to be heard. And a lot of people have come and spoken to me and Lucy at the Royal Court and they just said, we don't know anything, we just need to be heard. We need to know that it's been heard and I don't need to hold on to it on my own anymore. And actually that has been a thing. And that quite surprised me that that was something which was, it was good enough. I, mean, I don't know what that means when people go off into the world, but at that time it felt that was good enough. And, and did people talk of how in this industry that there's a vacancy there of women's voices because in various areas of theatre, say, that they left because of this, because of harassment or, or bullying, um, it was a, they weren't going to put up with it any longer. So then there's this they absence of it. a voice. I, don't, I haven't observed that. See, I don't, I'm never in that environment. So some people might ask that somewhere else, but I'm never a part of that conversation because I'm always surrounded by probably more women than men 
in any working situation, okay. which is a which is you know a very privileged position to be in. But I don't know. I mean, I think that you know one of the conversations that's happening um, around in, in London at the moment, in a very myopic echo chamber way, um, is is um, the sort of emerging female directors are saying that they feel it's taking longer for them to get the recognition that their male counterparts or their male peers are getting and it still feels harder for them to be getting the jobs than it does for the men. And I think that's a really, and they're quite a loud voice. And I think that's quite interesting and I think we need to really think about why they feel that and what that is. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm Will they stick with it or not? In your position then you can expediate that yeah or, yeah but in, in in a way you're you're doing everything you can do to facilitate that well within my organization i am and whether or not that is enough i don't know it probably isn't it never is enough is it and whether there's enough leadership there in terms of our organization for that to have impact but i think a lot of places are trying it but it's just interesting if this group this cohort are still feeling that they're being looked over for the young man. It's a bit, it's, it's a serious thing if they're thinking that now. Do you feel that there's more for you to do? Oh my God, so much more. I sort of wonder where the right place is to do that because I feel that sometimes, you know, you, you can have a position of power like I have at a place where people listen, like the Royal Court and pay attention to whatever that sort of cultural leadership is, which is very fortunate. But then I often sometimes wonder is, do, do you, is there a glass ceiling in that itself? And actually, because it's so institutionalized in the end, are you only able to have a couple of major impacts? And actually, is the next radical thing to do, to do something which is much more culturally breaking something open? Because, you know, the Royal Court is still part of a whole process. So it's just that, yeah, I mean, I think there's so much more to do. But I'm just, in, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about what the next thing would be. Feels like it needs to be something much more radical, doesn't it? No, I think the Royal Court is, is quite radical. But you're saying there's a glass ceiling there that you can only do so... Well, it's probably my own glass ceiling because I think you get to a point where you just sort of go... I mean, I'm not, I, f I still feel I'm totally in it. But I think you get to a point where you go, it's the most radical thing to, I don't know. I don't know what it would be. But to start something brand new, only have the values of what the now is yes. and what going forward is. How do you harness now? How do you? Well, the writers do that for me, obviously, for us, because that's all that all that they are. I mean, all not as in diminutive as in everything. I think sometimes I feel a sort of panic that it's not ever enough or harnessing it in a, in a big enough way or in a challenging enough way overall in terms of the kind of thing but you just have to really trust that the individual writers that we talk about although they can't take responsibility for the all within their plays that they write are doing something that make us see it, the world very differently yeah you can divide that responsibility yeah that's exactly right so that's to do with then the diversity of the programming Let's take some handbrake turns. Yeah. You talk about how um, you like to, I suppose, fail better. Every failure has a payoff. Are you a person that brings regrets with them? Are you, no. are you one for regrets? No. I, um, <laughs> um, no, I don't have regrets. I mean, I, I, I sort of, I don't have regrets from the past. I have, I have 
things in the now that I feel are like gnawing away, but that make me try to be better. But I think you have to let the past go, otherwise you would go mad. You, you can let it go, you don't. Yeah, not Catholic. Easy peasy for you then, eh? It is though. I don't have any guilt like that. It's very interesting. I do really live in the now, genuinely. Gosh. Like there's a whole... It's very liberating. Yeah, there's a whole thinking on how to compartmentalise your yeah. guilt. So many compartments. Yeah. But I just know that it's like jealousy. For me, jealousy and guilt are in the same thing. That obviously they're human instinct and you have it. But actually that they only are negative. It's really important as part of your growing up to be able to deal with where that comes from and why it exists and not give it, not give into it. I've had a massive thing, my daughter's really interesting, but she's 16, about jealousy. And I've really tried to instill in her, younger than I found it myself, how useless an emotion jealousy is. Is it a barometer though, by which you can... No, because it's just, it's just, negative it's just it eats you eats you up i think In i'm trying it's, it's hard for me to even like you've even you've come really like physically you're really different and everything but it, i feel that, but god i have loads of shit that i hang up put drag around but those things are things i've really kind of gone you can't have that because it just gnaws away it makes the now impossible if guilt and jealousy are surrounding you isn't it well, you're certainly lighter for the load for not having to carry it yeah. everywhere you go. But there's other things I carry, but not that. Uh, as a director, um, whose work directorially yeah. uh, has influenced your own? Oh, God, that's really interesting. Um, so people who've really inspired me, whether or not they've influenced, whether or not you would see that, but are people like Robert Lepage. And um, when I was sort of starting out, somebody like Deborah Warner, because her sort of scale really excited me and her sort of bravery and her boldness. Who else? Somebody who always inspires me is James MacDonald because his work is so unbelievably detailed with text and I sort of aspire to be that detailed with text because I'm obsessed with it. But yeah. Good choices. If you had to write your own story, uh, and I'm <laughs> thinking that you're going to say that you're not a writer, but if you had to write your own yeah. story, how would it go and where would it start from? Oh my God. Oh my God, I don't know what my story would be. I think my story would be about, and this makes sense of, with all of the things that we've been talking about, about like guilt and jealousy and now, would be about the fact that my, we, I moved around a lot. And so it was always about how do you adapt to the surroundings that you're in as a kid and use lots of schools. How do you adapt? to the surroundings that you're in. So there's something about having to be, my story is about how are you able to be self-sufficient within new surroundings. Um, so with this story that you've just um, written yourself, what's the soundtrack to it? Oh my God. Oh my God, there'd be so many things. Joni Mitchell, Bjork, obviously a bit of Dolly Parton and Janet Jackson, and then something really emotional like Massive Attack. So what are you, uh... What excites you about the future? 
I think that theatre's changing massively. I think that we we've reached a tipping point that we can't go back from now about diversity and equality in theatre. I think for all of theatre to catch up, it'll take a while, but we can't go backwards now, and I really feel that, and I've never felt that so strongly, and that's unbelievably exciting. So I think in terms of equality, accessibility, all of those things, we're just about to open, it's in a whole new light. Uh, an example is very good, a good friend of mine, brilliant actress and now writer Natasha Gordon has written this play Nine Night that's on at the National about her family, um, which is an all black cast, oh it's got one white person in it, it's an all black cast directed by a brilliant young black director, kind of diverse creative team, it's completely sold out, it's got massive cues for returns, that's a really big shift that that's there. So I'm really excited about theatre has to now be representative of the world that we live in and I don't think we can let it not be anymore. So that's really exciting. I think we should leave it there. Thank you very much, Vicky Featherston. Thank you very much. Thank you.